once again, Captain Hindsight comes to this House and attacks the government for doing exactly what he urged us to do 18 months ago. Lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Uh, uh, word of warning. Word of warning, Prime Minister. That's not going to work with the police. <laughs> Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. Uh, welcome to uh, this election special episode. Now we're fully done, I think, all counts, especially in Scotland, and I think there's a handful in England that is still ongoing. Um, but we're pretty much there in Scotland. Um, my name's Conor Matchett. I'm Deputy Political Editor at the Scotsman. With me today is Hannah Brown, Political Correspondent, and all the way from smoggy, smoggy London, Alex Brown, our Westminster Correspondent as well. We're going to take you through the council election results, you know, what it means for Scotland and independence and all those fun issues, as well as the bigger kind of results in in terms of the cities but let's have a quick run through of where we are compared to where we were we'll start with first preference vote share which is probably the best indication of how well any of the parties did the SNP grew about two percentage points to 34.1 percent obviously the biggest party Labour came in second with 21.7 percent which is up about 1.6 percent uh, the Conservative vote collapsed um, down almost six points to 19.6%. The Lib Dems had a nice recovery up to 8.6%. That's up about two. The Independent vote dropped about 2% to 84 Greens up two to 6%. And Alex Salmon's Alba party on 0.7%. And also the Scottish Family Party on 0.4%. In terms of seats... That saw the SNP gain 22, they've now got 453, Labour gained 20, they're on 282, the Conservatives lost 62, they're on 214 now, Uh, 19 seats fewer for independents across the country, they're on 149, Lib Dems got 20, they're on 87, the Greens almost doubled their their councillors, up 16 and now on 35, a handful of others which included the British Unionist Party and the Rubbish Party, which I'll let you at home Google for full information of those tiny parties. But that gives you a quick overview of the of the national picture. Critically, the SNP are the biggest council in 21, uh, biggest group even in 21, councils up two. Tories are the biggest in five, down two. Independents in three, down two. And Labour in three as well, down one. So after that, Hannah... You were in Glasgow. That was probably the most exciting count of the day. Take us through what happened. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I was there from yeah the, the get go almost as the votes started coming in, and I think we got the kind of the vibe that it was going to be an interesting day uh, from one of the first council wards that was announced. I think it was Shettleston, uh, where the SNP made a loss at the expense of Labour. I think two Labour. 
councillors were voted in, in the Shesselson ward, which was quite interesting. And yeah, just to kind of break it down, so the SNP did manage to hold on to Glasgow by a single councillor, though. I think it was something like 37 councillors that the SNP got and then 36 that Labour got. And it was only until the last ward was announced, which I think was Mary Hill, that we really got an idea of who, who just nabbed it. I think we were sitting at 35 35. Also performing well in Glasgow were the Greens. Uh, really interesting uh, from uh, councillor, well, new councillor Holly Bruce, a young woman uh, from the Langside Ward. She won out against Susan Aitken on first preference votes, uh, the council leader uh, for Glasgow. So that was really interesting. So yeah, definitely you could cut the cut the tension in Glasgow with a knife because it was just it was very very tense at the very last minute and kind of throughout the day and I think because we heard a lot of Labour seats our Labour councillors being announced at the very beginning and a lot of Green councillors as well at the very beginning we all thought oh my goodness this is going to be a massive change but yeah then then SNP started to to gain momentum and it was only until the very last minute that they pipped Labour to the post. It's a, it's a massively symbolic council, isn't it, Glasgow, for, for both parties. You know, it's Labour's old historic stronghold. It's the SNP's, yeah. you know, it's the pro-indie city. That's what the SNP like to talk about. It's obviously Nicola Sturgeon's hometown. Mm-hmm. It's Alas hometown. It's a really, it was almost the cherry on the icing of the cake for Labour, you know, given that they finished second nationwide, which is exactly what they were hoping to do. How did the parties feel at the end of it? I mean, did did Labour feel a bit deflated or were they were they happy with where they ended up? Yeah, so it was really interesting because Anna Sarwar, I think, turned up to the Glasgow Count, uh, I'd say about an hour, maybe 40 minutes, it's hard to tell, before Nicola Sturgeon did. Um, and you could see he was totally changing his tone as the votes were starting to come in. I think he said, you know, his big thing was, oh, I'm putting Labour, we're putting Labour back on the pitch now. Um, and as the votes started coming in, he suddenly changed that to, oh, well, we, we could win this thing, you know, we could do it. And then I think he must have got forewarning before the vote came out for Mary Hill because you see, saw him slowly creep away from the count. And then that's when um, Nicola Sturgeon made her grand entrance, uh, holding the hand of Susan Aitken, uh, showing that she was kind of standing beside the Glasgow Council leader. So that was quite interesting because I think talking to Labour pressers at the very beginning of the day and throughout, they were telling me, you know, oh, we're 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 being moderate. We're we're making sure we, we, you know, we're trying to be humble about this. Anything could happen, but you could tell that they had a lot of confidence in what they were going to do here. Uh, but they they did also mention, and Greens also mentioned, Patrick Harvey had a massive smile on his face during the count. He was very keen to talk to us and very keen to show that he was, uh, yeah, bringing forward uh, transgender women. He was bringing forward young women. You know, he was really showing how diverse. Uh, yeah, the Green Party were doing and how well the Green Party were doing. So he was very keen and happy. Um, Lib Dems, didn't really hear much from them. Uh, it's not really a, a, a hunting ground as much as perhaps Edinburgh is for them. So yeah, I think a lot of people came out of Glasgow with a wee bit of smile on the face, but probably Labour feeling slightly deflated at that win from the SNP just at the beginning, because I really do feel that they thought they were going to nab it, um, and they didn't. And I think SNP were holding back until the very last minute. I think I, w- I was trying to talk to Susan Aitken and they were just not letting me get to her until the last vote. Um, and then I just, I gave up because there was a massive crowd of 
of of men completely swarming them from the press, which we isn't something that you know surprises us. Uh, the press being mainly male dominated there, so yeah, uh, it was quite interesting to see that SNP were holding their tongue until the last minute. And then kind of showing that they were quite happy with it. But Labour maybe feeling a wee bit deflated at it. Dreadful day for the Tories, though, wasn't it, in Glasgow? I mean, they, they, they went from eight seats to two, oh, yeah. which is pretty much their worst result in terms of, you know, percentage of seats lost across the country in terms of Scotland, at least. Oh, do you know what? I didn't even think about Conservatives there. Neither the voters. <laughs> <laughs> I know, um, I know Kat, the council, the, the group leader of the Tories just held on to a seat in Glasgow, but... I mean, that, that's that's going to hurt, isn't it, going forward? They were, prior to the election, ahead of the Greens. Um, they're now almost a non-entity, on the, at least in Glasgow. Oh, totally. And you could see them. I mean, I I wasn't approached or I didn't even kind of approach any kind of Tories at the time because you, you, you knew that they weren't going to do well here. They weren't going to fare well. Not that they've done incredibly well in Glasgow, you know, for, for a couple of years now. But it was just one of those things. Yeah, even when we were talking about it there, I was just thinking, bit of a hopeless cause um, for them here. But yeah, and uh, quite interesting though, even like in East Rhine, which is very close to Glasgow, uh, they, they lost out in a few seats, I think. And in particular wards where you wouldn't expect them to, to lose out. So there was Newton, Merrin South, where they had such a stronghold in that ward of, I think, about three Tory councillors in that one ward and one of them managed to get popped out because of a a Labour uh, councillor which you just wouldn't see in that sort of ward so it's really interesting looking at the specifics of where in the west the Tories are suffering in these specific kind of more maybe affluent kind of well-off neighbourhoods you can even tell that there's a shift uh, towards other parties other than Conservatives. And talking of the Conservatives and absolute catastrophes, um, that's what Ballot Box Scotland, you know, great resource for anyone who's wanting real real detailed analysis of, of, of each council. But he, that's what he describes, the Edinburgh result for, for the Conservatives, which which for people people listening, the SNP stayed on 19 seats, Labour up 1 to 13. Uh, the Lib Dems with an astonishing result in Edinburgh, um, which surprised everyone on the day going from six seats to 12, literally doubling. The Greens gained two as well, up 10, and the Conservatives lost nine across the city. And again, it was another one of those examples of where, I would argue, maybe six, seven months ago, the Conservatives were probably quite looking at Edinburgh and thinking that, you know, they could they could become the largest party there. They were, they were the second largest party before the election. And Edinburgh is a, it's a rainbow city when it comes to politics. There's not um, it's not an SNP stronghold by any means. It's not a Labour stronghold. And the Conservative group were glum as anything. Talking about the SNP as well, just in general, they took control of Dundee. Um, they're still the largest party in Aberdeen as well. Although who runs that city, God only knows, after the Aberdeen 9 madness of the last five years. If we talk nationally, do we think the SNP are going to be happy with these results? I mean, their press is is saying so. They're saying that it's the best results they've had at a council election ever on record, I think. So, yeah, but I I think they'd be lying to themselves if they said that they were totally happy with a few gains that were made by other parties. You know, obviously that they were going to do well given all the, and I hate to use the P word, but given party eight, that was going to be something that would really, really impact 
conservatives and maybe show a few shift of votes in different parties, um, maybe for SNP. It's hard to say because do you go from conservative to then an SNP supporter? Hmm, I don't know. But they were probably expecting quite a quite a decent win and did they? Yes, they did on record. They did. Um, but as good as it could have been given the circumstances, I don't know. So maybe not as happy as they could be. But uh, what do you guys think? I think they would be a yeah. bit rattled. I think that yeah. the results were, I mean, good. They, you know, they, they won, um, which is, you know, fine. A win is a win is a win. But the resurgence of the Labour Party it's presence in Glasgow, a city which uh, the SNP, you know, would consider themselves to be very popular in, uh, and their record was on the line there. And it was not a universal endorsement. And the Labour Party are back, and in you know seats and wards across the country, the Labour Party supplanted the Conservatives and got a lot closer than anyone thought they would have a right to get. And I know that you can go, well, the victory isn't there, but, you know, it's, it's council seats. It's not really about winning sometimes. Sometimes it's about how close you can get to winning. Like, so the Lib Dems had a terrible general election last time out, but they are second. They were second in so many seats. And then that's kind of been reflected in the council seats where they've done much better than expected because they've built on that. And I think it's the same for the Labour Party. They've been a complete non-entity to being all that the SNP figures have talked about on the broadcast rounds. We had uh, a quite visibly irritated first minister telling Sky of the Count, "Oh, did uh, sorry, did I, was I wrong? Did we we won the election? We won the election again." Ringing endorsement um, when she was asked about Labour. We had Ian Blackwood refer to them as red Tories. Um, you know, you've won, and the immediate responses, and and same from SNP press officers, and you know, the accounts is to criticise Labour because Labour are a threat. It's one thing for Labour to take seats off the Tories. But if they start being taken a bit more seriously in Scotland and being a viable alternative, the SNP's record, especially on you know matters such as education and health, will come under more scrutiny, and they will be a threat. Uh, I think it is. A great, I mean, it's obviously a great result for them, but it's not what they'd have what they would have wanted. It's not uh, the knockout blow that you would think all these years of government would necessarily deliver, and it wasn't the sweeping endorsement for independence they'd hoped for. Um, I thought Labour had a really surprising and strong night um both sides of the border i'm going to slightly disagree with you on that alex shockingly in the sense that i think i think labor's performance is a positive for anasawa but i don't think i don't think you can legitimately say that they are back and that they have that, that, that their support at least in scotland has kind of recovered or even resurged to a point where they can be considered as a serious challenge. No, 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 of course, yeah. but it's, it's baby steps. I'm not saying, you know, they're back now and they're mm. suddenly going to take sway the seats from the SNP. My point is that Labour in Scotland, you know, they still only, they they haven't haven't reached the 22% mark in, in these council elections. They've only gone up by a couple of percent in terms of first brush votes. And I think this is more of a story of the Conservative collapse and where those votes have gone. You know, I think if you look at, particularly in parts of the country that you wouldn't expect greens to be there are a lot of little green pockets of councillors now in in the north of north of scotland and in rural scotland that is it's a pattern that we've seen down south where you know formerly tory places have gone green you know rather than lib dem particularly at local level and i think the lib dem result again demonstrates that this is more of a story about conservative collapse than it is about labor resurgence on the snp side of things you know this is as 
as Hannah says, you know, this is their best ever local election result, 34.1%. I, I think there's only one better result in the history of local government in terms of post-devolution, at least, uh, which was Donald Dewar's Labour Party in 1999, which is about 36%. But that was obviously back in the days of, you know, first past the post <laughs> um, uh, and not STV. So I think I think they'll be a bit miffed. I think you're right on that, Alex. I think they'll be they'll be looking at this result and they'll be going, you know, if you think that council election demonstrates people's genuine first preference because it's STV and all of that, I think they'll be looking at that 34%. And if anyone in SMP, SMP HQ has sense, they'll be worried about the fact that wasn't higher towards where they were suggesting it would be pre-election. You know, the SNP were talking about 38% in this election, you know, before Thursday. I said before this that they'd be happy with anything over 35%. They've just missed that. And I think that they'll be quietly frustrated in the background, despite the fact that they can legitimately say this is their best ever result and that they're, they, they've, they you know, it's a seismic result and all of that. They can They can spin it that way, but I think they will be quietly frustrated with it. Well, I think the expectations are so warped, right? When they're such a when they've been in power so long and they win everything so relentlessly that even the idea that their best ever result could in some way be a disappointment is a legitimate talking point. But I, I, I take your point. I just think like Labour came have been nothing for so long, um, and it, they just look. It's not really about whether they are the viable alternative. They just look like they're someone who can win a bit now. They look like someone who, you know, people are maybe starting to trust a bit more. And it, that's not something that happens overnight. It's gradual. And I just think the response has been so critical of Labour from the SNP since that. I think they are, they now know that that's going to be the bigger threat to them going forward than perhaps they thought it would be. I think Labour have done really well. But I think, and I hate to use it, drumroll please, it is the independence issue that will always hold Labour back in Scotland, particularly in Glasgow. And that can't be, I know we talk about it and Indyref is always on the cards and people will be he- uh, sick and tired of hearing stories on this. Um, but you can't deny that this is a huge thing and a huge maybe falling point for Labour in Scotland, particularly in cities like Glasgow, um, where there is a kind of yeah, very left-leaning, uh, or sorry, yes-leaning um vote here so yeah I think I think that's probably the thing that really really did hold them back talking to people in Glasgow knowing people in Glasgow from different kind of wide political landscapes where they usually vote um, it has been something that's held them back from voting Labour even though they're so frustrated with the Tories so frustrated with SNP being in role for so long they're like ah but I can't I can't quite back Labour on their views towards the constitution. So it's really interesting that and yeah, it might it might sound a wee bit like overplayed and cliched, but it is independence that's holding them back. It'll be fascinating to see what happens in the general election because I, I think going back to to your point, Alex, and you know, tangentially to yours, Hannah, you know, if, if Labour have made a breakthrough in Scotland in terms of convincing people that they are, you know, worth backing. I think the the general election in what well, we're, we're going to assume it's probably 2024 at this point, you know, is going to be a real test for them in Scotland because I think you'll have a, you can see it with Anasar already. He's already saying that the next election is not going to be about constitution. It's going to be Boris versus Britain, and that you know for Scotland to 
you know, progress, they're going to need to vote um, Labour rather than the SNP. And it's whether or not in the next two years he can convince um, enough SNP voters across the country to back Labour to get Boris out of power and forget about the constitution in in the intervening period. I'm not sure he's done enough work on that yet. I don't think these council election results in Scotland at least show that Labour are going to topple the SNP in enough seats to make a meaningful difference down south. But it will be very, very interesting to see if they can continue, you know, the trend, the polling, including the poll, the result on, on Thursday has been positive for Labour. They, they pulled out a seven point lead in our last Holyrood poll um, over the Conservative Party, but are still many, many, many points behind. I think it's 21 points behind the SNP. Um, it's a massive, massive you know, gap to bridge. Let's move on and talk about briefly, very briefly, the other first minister who was involved in these elections in, in Alex Salmond. The Alba party are, are finished, aren't they, Hannah? Oh dear, yeah, not a great result, eh? Um, yeah, I mean, were we expecting anything else? We saw, you know, people who had seats who were well-established people in SNP completely fall over, yeah, the week over the count. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I mean, it just goes to show that, yeah, people are not going to back this. I think Alex Salmond was definitely trying to target certain communities here in Glasgow, particularly uh, with the vote, uh, particularly in like the kind of Pollock Shields area of Glasgow, which just kind of failed dramatically. <laughs> it's fair to say. And a lot of people, yeah, coming out that it wasn't them to blame. I think it was just more so, yeah, people are so disenfranchised and so, yeah, SNP are our main kind of party and it's really hard to overcome that and all that and people are still, you know, being fed this misinformation by the SNP is what Alba kind of claims. But, yeah, people have had their say and it's not looking good, Alec. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think uh, the General Secretary of the party, Chris McElhenney, who's been a councillor in in Inverclyde for a long time, you know, had all the benefits of being their second biggest name as a, as a party and also, you know, incumbency and got 126 votes um, in a part of the world that really Alba should be doing better in. I think it's uh, Brian Topping up in Aberdeenshire as well, who's a, a friend of, of Alex Salmon's and uh, certainly someone, I think he was pro- formerly an SNP Lord Provost in the area, who again got 250-odd votes and was miles away from being elected. So I think we can probably say that for the foreseeable future, they are in irrelevance until they have a, mm. uh, a breakthrough at electoral level. I do think while we have to recognise results bad for them, we shouldn't also forget that it's very funny. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I've noticed, I think there is news today as well, and this is away from council elections, but, you know, them, them slagging off SNP, but I think it was a uh, Fife guy, Neil Hanvey, who's an MP there, um, saying that he's not going to give up his seat because he's he doesn't owe anyone a by-election, uh, despite Alba's failure at the council elections. It's quite interesting because he's still holding on to, yeah, his power based on kind of what he did within, yeah, the party itself. I just don't see them going forward. And like Alex said. Let's chat national politics now in terms of UK wide um, and get Mr. Brown in with his expert analysis. Um, lots of <laughs> chat about um, about Labour underperforming, but it was a dreadful, dreadful night for the Conservative Party. 
your boys took one hell of a beating. They got absolutely smashed, uh, lost nearly 500 seats, swathes of councils, and all these areas that are traditional conservative strongholds. Uh, and there were symbolic gains for Labour. We're talking Wandsworth. Uh, we're talking Westminster, Southampton. These seats the Tories have had for so long. Low council, you know, low tax havens. The Hong Kongs of, of council uh, went to the Labour Party. Uh, I mean, the, you already had Tory spinners going, oh, you know, but like, it just shows they're a bunch of Remainers. Okay, sure, but people voted for them in London because, and you gave them every reason not to uh, with the low council tax, and they still hate the Conservatives enough to vote Labour. Um, it was a pretty fantastic night for Keir up until the Durham police <laughs> deciding to uh, reinvestigate. But up until that point, um, it's been disastrous Conservatives. And no one really seems to know why or to be taking any reasoning for it. I think one of the key things here is that for so long, the Prime Minister managed to kind of keep votes in the South and also take votes in the North, right? He built a coalition of like the affluent South and then the Red Wall, uh, which would then support him. As it is, the Red Wall has not come back to Labour. I mean, it's still pretty Tory. But the South, areas that you would not necessarily expect to leave the Conservatives, have gone to the Liberal Democrats, who I think probably had the best night out of everyone. Um, I mean, Sir Ed Davey, you know, God love him, not particularly inspiring other than when he's taking photographs, trying to pet a cat. And just quietly, they've gone about their business. You know, we don't think of them as this huge force, but they have taken so many seats and so many councils, um, and they were surprised themselves. The Conservatives are, I mean, not the part, I think the BBC poll showed that if that was replicated general election, it would be Labour would have the most seats. I think a separate poll said that the Tories have the most seats, but not enough to have a majority. So it would be a Labour, SNP, Lib Dem coalition. You are, if you're a Conservative and you're looking at those results, you think, well, you know, we've lost all these seats we're supposed to hold. Partygate continues to be a problem. And the only reason to keep the Prime Minister at this point is, who else? Which is, which was also the line being briefed by Downing Street. A lot of Downing Street sources overnight were saying, well, you know, the Prime Minister remains the best man for the job and who else could be leader, which is hardly a ringing endorsement of their approach. What, what, what about Labour? I mean, we, if we look at, look at the results, you know, the Conservatives in England, um, just to leave Wales aside for a second, but, you know, Conservatives in England lost 338 seats um, and Labour only gained 22. Now, 2018 uh, was the last time those seats were up, up for election. Um, but as you say, that doesn't seem like a particularly good hall for the Labour Party. Is this a question of do the Labour Party need a strong Lib Dem uh, party to succeed nationwide? Or is this a, a problem that Labour have, if you see what I mean, in terms of getting getting their old votes back? For time eternal, a successful Labour Party needs a strong Liberal Democrat Party. Labour governments have won because in the southwest, in seats like some, across Somerset, Cornwall, the Liberal Democrats have been a present to take seats off the Conservatives. I, and this will shock some of our Scottish listeners, am not from Scotland, and, I, and I'm sorry to reveal that exclusively <laughs> on the steamy. Well, I am shocked, Alex. Hold the front page. I like Rory Stewart, Michael Gove, Scottish accent. I can say issue. Um, issue uh, in Somerset, the Liberal Democrats. It's always a Lib Dem and then a Tory seat. The Labour candidate would often go around with a met with a megaphone, going out a car, vote Labour, and then come election day, go to the pub and tell people to go out and vote Lib Dem, or even knock on doors to Lib Dems. Because of the, because of the coalition and because of Corbyn, 
uh, in those areas, people kind of fell out a little bit with the Democrats. They didn't forgive them. And so as a result, it was looking like Tories forever. But the Lib Dems winning those seats, I mean, I think the perceived projection where they would be on 28 seats uh, in general election, which is not necessarily going to be replicated, but that would be a stunning turnaround of their fortunes. And that would be, I mean, it's, it's not through Scotland that Labour can win. It is through the Liberal Democrats in the South uh, that will give them their best chance because Labour are a complete non-factor there. So it's not damning for Labour that they didn't win those seats because they would have no expectation to. Their concern should be that it's the Tory votes collapsing. It's not that Labour's is going up. It's that people don't want to vote Conservative. It's not that they want to vote Labour. And what, what, what are the Greens? The Greens almost doubled their... In fact, I think they did double their, their, their seats on councils across England. I mean, that's, that's a phenomenal result for them as well. Yeah, I mean, that was like a real surprise. I mean, I would love to offer you some like great analysis saying, oh, it's because of this or because of that. But unfortunately, I have no idea how that's happened. There is a climate emergency. Maybe that's a factor. And people are a bit disillusioned with, I mean, I can only speak anecdotally, but I know a lot of my friends who maybe were traditional Labour voters are disillusioned with Starmer. And in just speaking to people generally, when they ask you what you do and they're like, oh, you know, I like politics, but I don't, I don't find Starmer very inspiring. And, you know, words about the Liberal Democrats, I won't repeat on a, on a morning broadcast. So I can see why they would succeed. Um, and though I don't necessarily know that there's any great examples of them running councils, right? No, they didn't win any council uh, council patrols. But I know, I know just, again, this is anecdotal from a few years ago now, but when I worked in Norfolk and Suffolk, for example, you know, classic rural Tory areas, um, the Greens would often be the second choice for um, Conservative voters um, who were, you know, wanted more localism in, in their council. You saw that quite a lot. There was a, a <laughs> I'm going to say it's a classic example, no one other than me and probably two of the people um, in the area I used to cover would remember, but there was a there was an example of a Conservative council defecting to the Greens um, right. in, you know, rural Suffolk, which I think if you, you, you spoke to people up here, they would be, astonished yeah. at the possibility of something like yeah, that greens but, and tories is such a yeah you, you didn't yeah. get that anywhere near glasgow or anywhere kind of i can't imagine that in the in the cities here yeah what i would say on the uh growth of the greens and the Liberal democrats as well is that under corbyn the labor party probably got a bit of a protest vote right like people who felt disillusioned by the main parties but suddenly felt they had something to believe in this current labor party while it may be more competent uh, it's not necessarily the most inspiring. And also, it, in trying to look professional and the sort of you know party that newspapers can be kind to because they will need small, you know, they need conservatives or people who vote conservatives vote Labour to win. They're kind of shutting off a bit people who maybe would have gone to them before. There was a, and this is a, you know, did the rounds all over social media. There was some promoted advertising from the Labour Party that said the Liberal Democrats want to get rid of nuclear weapons and legalise drug use. And I think if you are a rational young person, you're like, good, regulation, baby. Let's not kill the people en masse. Um, and I, I don't think that was necessarily the best idea or the most well-judged approach for a so-called progressive party. And the same way they did them about, they did some horrible things about the Greens as well. And I do think that sort of thing cuts through because while some people are more tribal, others, they just want, they want, they do believe in a progressive alliance and having a go at those other parties is going to turn people off. Just before we, we, we finish, let, let's talk future of the union, because I think it, it's critical for the sole reason, and it's not the Scotland results, although I'm sure they'll play into what we describe and talk about, but the, the Northern Ireland Assembly 
um, which collapsed earlier this year. Um, you know, seriously historic result in Northern Ireland, the Sinn Féin uh, becoming the largest party for the first time. It's the first time any nationalist um, party has been uh, the biggest party uh, in, in Northern Ireland. Um, DUP uh, in second, the splinter of the unionist vote um, saw them lose three seats, end up on 25. The Alliance Party of Northern Ireland, which is the sister party to the Liberal Democrats in the, in the rest of the UK, finished uh, with nine more seats up to 17. The UUP on nine, lost one. The SDLP on eight, lost four. And, and a smattering of other seats uh, between the UUP, sorry, the traditional unionist voice, TUV and People Before Profit. That is a significant result. Lots of talks about you know, what this means for the border poll, which is referendum and Irish reunification. Personally, I think that's massively premature. This is a, I imagine we'll have another vote in Northern Ireland six months after, you know, DUP failed to agree to uh, nominating a, a deputy first minister. But is this the closest the country has gotten to potentially losing two parts uh, of the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, reunification and Scotland independence. And do we think either of those are going to happen anytime soon, Alex? Well, I'm glad that you come to me with this as an expert. Yeah. Having seen <laughs> new series of Derry Girls. New series of Derry Girls, excellent. And watched Robbie, Robbie Keane for several years at Tottenham Hotspur. Um, <laughs> to be honest, uh, no, I think that it's my main concerns over this, or at least you now the concerns over what the main you know, talking points are going to be, is uh, Northern, Northern Ireland Protocol, which is what I try not to talk about. And it, every day, every week, I, you know, this is fine. And then suddenly the Northern Ireland, you think it's gone. You think you've got rid of it. And then the Northern Ireland Protocol just pops its head up and we have to talk about it again. So with regards to the union, I think everyone's already talking about that down earlier this morning. We had ministers saying it was a bit premature. Um, we should get carried away by what this means for Sinn Féin. Um, the university's minister was on the broadcast on Monday morning saying, you know, Sure, that's something that we're thinking about, but my, my main focus is on like delivering for all for forms of the UK. And they also said that the vote was a ringing endorsement of the union, which is certainly one way to frame it. So, you know, no. The union is going on forever. Six seasons and a movie. Yeah, I'll be fine. What do you think, Hannah? Well, I know that um, the Deputy Westminster Leader for the SNP, I think, was writing, Kristen Oswald was writing for the BBC the other day, saying that the SNP is cranking up for a second independence referendum here in Scotland. So, I mean, with, with the party kind of going forward with that and, yeah, with Nicola Sturgeon, I think, promising for the vote to be before the end of 2023 here, if I'm right... Maybe I'm just being too, you know, simple with this, but I do see it happening in Scotland, uh, a referendum vote anyway. But I think it could happen given that the polls are showing and it does depend what poll you're looking at, who you're trusting with your information. But there is, yeah, it is a bit neck and neck with the yes, no vote here. I think fundamentally um, it boils down to, do you could, think the UK government happen. will do the right um, thing so or do what Alex it should do based on public demand <laughs> or what it wants to do? And speaking to ministers, speaking to MPs, they have absolutely no interest in having a referendum. They will keep saying it was once in a lifetime or once in a generation. I think once in a lifetime was The Rock facing John Cena. It's very different. Um, so I just, I just, there's no desire or intention for it to happen in the, from the UK government. And I know that sometimes that shouldn't be enough and it should be if Scotland wants it, then we should have it. But it is not, it really is not that simple. 
because you are relying on a prime minister who has repeatedly, you know, we'll say bended the rules or interpreted them uh, with gay abandon. And I don't, you know, he's not going to do it. There's no reason for him to do that. But then we've got the domino effect of do we think that prime minister will be in power for long? Well, sure. Okay, but then who's going to, so new prime minister comes in, they go, well, you know, I'm going to have a new refocus on Scotland after that last guy who was a minister for the union, who did so well with it. And um, it's 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 too early to rush anything. And they don't want to be the prime minister who lost the union. So... I think basically, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen after the next general election. It will not happen before because I think the S and P need a clean sweep. Um, otherwise, they will just keep prevaricating, putting it off. I think the, the key thing to remember in all of this as well is that the S and P's timetable for twenty twenty three is determined um, and dependent on their referendum bill in Holyrood, which is we're expecting you know within the next few months um, to be tabled and passed. Inevitably that is going to result in a court challenge, almost certainly, either from the UK government um, and talking to to ministers and sources around that, you know, you know, they're not they're not sure whether or not they want to let that be challenged by, you know, a Macmillan type, you know, referencing Gina Miller, you know, at which point you lose the control of the case and, you know, how you how you approach it. So I would expect the UK government to challenge uh, the referendum bill, certainly on grounds of competency. Um, in terms of Holyrood, if nothing else. Um, and that's the critical thing, because if the, the SNP deliver that and then get shut down by the UK government um, and challenged in court and, you know, either... We, I don't know what the Supreme Court is going to say on that that sort of question. Um, we have a pretty good idea what they might say. They'll probably say, obviously, that's out with the competency. But there is always the possibility that the Supreme Court, within the next 12 months, says that that referendum bill is within competency and the SNP can go ahead and have their referendum in 2023. The likelihood of that is is slim, but it could happen. I think we have to remember that that whole next 18 months of independence debate is going to be really instructive on how we approach and how Scotland approaches getting an Indy Ref 2. It'll be really fascinating to see if that's knocked down by the UK, by the Supreme Court, the, the post-2024 election period will be fascinating as well. I think that's all we've got time for this this morning. Thank you very much at home uh, for listening. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Alex. It's going to be a busy week and both parliaments are back. Uh, Hannah, you're working on uh, issues around John Mason and his comments on oh, abortion. Don't start me, <laughs> Do not start me. That's, that's a podcast in itself, man. <laughs> um, and Alex, uh, I imagine it's it's more Partygate for you? More Partygate, and we've got the Queen's speech. We finally find out if she is really alive or if it's just a robot, and they're not telling us. <laughs> well, it's fantastic to see whether or not we're living in Futurama or not. Um, thank you very much at home for listening. We'll see you soon. The Steamy, a laudable production for The Scotsman.